Genesis chapter 6 through 919, 6, 9 through 919 gives us this narrative of God's judgment in the flood, his remembrance, his faithfulness to save Noah, and the lessons we learned from that. And of course, as I said just a minute ago, we're on the last part of this. What we're really concerned with this morning is the, what we call the aftermath of the flood, what happens after uh, last week, we emphasized, we looked at the deliverance that God brings, and the center of this massive Hebrew chiastic par- uh, par- uh, poem, this parallelism, which kind of centers in this two words, God remembered. God remembered Noah. God remembered. He's faithful is what that means. And then the flood waters decreased, and then they find dry ground, and so on, and so on, and so the Uh, salvation, the solution to the tragedy or the trauma of the flood is God's faithfulness. But what happens after? What happens now that the flood is over? Now that they emerge from the ark and devastation surrounds them? What now? That's our text. Um, Chapter chapter 8, verse 15 is where I want to begin reading. And I'm going to read through 919 today. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth, and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy everything as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night, Shall not cease. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I will require it and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made them. He made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him saying, And as for me... Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living thing, living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. 
I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to pay close attention to your inerrant word, that we would um, be ready to learn, be ready to grow. Be ready to be challenged in our thinking and in our living today. Be challenged to meditate further and more significantly on you and your mercy. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It is very clear when you read through the flood narrative, and especially when you hit to the aftermath of the flood, that Noah could be considered a sort of Adam 2.0. It's a great reset. He's resetting everything. Um, That is seen in the literary structure, in the poetry of it. It's seen in the theology of it. That we're to understand this is the new beginning for man. And what is fascinating about this parallelism and this new beginning is how it all begins after the purging, the preservation. And what we see is the first sort of aspect of the new world is a worshiping man. Now that's not insignificant because that is what God had created man for. The first Adam and Eve, God had created to be a worshiping couple, a worshiping people. And they failed in that because they worshiped their own fleshly desires. And so here we'll see Noah begins with a response of worship. Can you imagine with me for just a moment the sort of perspective that Noah had coming out of that ark? It had been about a year. I'm sure he's ready to get out of the ark along with his wife and his sons and their wives. But when you get out, there is nothing but devastation. Sure, green plants are beginning to rise up. That's, that's happening. It's been enough time for that to elapse. But everything's different. Not only is everything different, but that is just simply not enough time for the carnage to have been dissolved and gone away with. There were likely carcasses of man and animal everywhere. Rocks strewn, exploded areas, craters and devastation. Staggering, tragic, amazed by deliverance. Perhaps all these things characterize Noah's perspective as he leaves the ark. But Moses wants us to see, who authors this, he wants us to see that there is a direct connection between the ark and an altar. This is seen in the chiastic structure of the text. We began at the beginning of this chiasm, way back in Genesis chapter 6, build you an ark, and now Noah builds him an altar. Because deliverance ought to produce gratefulness. There is a direct line between salvation and worship. 
And the question even might come up, why would Noah risk sacrificing so many animals? Why would he risk that? Now, in this text, we understand a little bit now why there were um, 14 or 7 pairs of clean animals... And we understand clean to be a, dis- a mosaic description, a Jewish description of what the later Pentateuch will describe as clean. It's, we could go through that. We'll get to that when we get that part in the Pentateuch. But think, think sheep and goats and cows and that sort of thing. Well, Noah seems to think one of the chief reasons for these clean animals is to sacrifice them to God. But think about it with me for just a moment. There's not many animals left, Right? The survival of the animal kingdom and by nature the human race relies upon every single drop of blood from every single living thing. And yet Noah sacrifices, and it says in our text, of every clean animal and of every clean bird. Indicating he took a representative from the sheep family and the goat family and the cow family and the dove family and and on and on. And I don't think he was thinking, oh, we've got 14, there's plenty to spare. It is a common reality that people often think that the gift we give to God in sacrifice, in worship, the gifts that Israel gave to God, the gifts that Noah gave to God, the gift that a weeping woman gave to Jesus with expensive perfume... That people often have the perspective of the disciples in that New Testament story. Why are you wasting this? This could have been used and sold at a great price and given to the poor. Such practical things we could do with this sort of thing. Noah could be so practical here, but you understand it is not a waste to worship. Because Noah learned a very important lesson. The animals, them having babies, them producing and them creating a food base is not really what's going to help them to survive in this new world. It was not what helped them survive through the flood. It's not what they need for the new world. What they need over and above everything else else is they need the mercy and grace of God. They need that. And Noah has experienced deliverance of epic proportions and he's willing to say in faith, because that's what worship is, in faith, here God, have some of this back. I need you more than I need this. Which is exactly going to that New Testament story is what Jesus spoke of with that woman who spilled out expensive perfumes and the disciples were incensed because after all it could have been sold and given to the poor and all those sorts of things. And he says, she did well. She did it for my burial. It's never a waste to worship. Now, in our text, we also see in this worship that happens after the flood, we see very strong Pentateuchal language. In other words, um, the words like clean animals, altar, uh, burnt offering, that word straight out of Leviticus. God smelling a sweet aroma. All these will be themes that will be constantly repeated in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. As we work through the Pentateuch, we'll see that this idea of sacrificial blood, sacrificial, innocent in the place of the guilty, pleasing to God is a constant theological theme through the Pentateuch. And and so the question is, why does Moses, the question I had, you may not have had this, the question is, why does Moses like want us to see Leviticus here in Genesis chapter 8. 
Like, why does he want us to, like, use all the terminology that Leviticus will use about the priestly sacrificial systems, which is still going to be over a thousand years away from being implemented? Like, why does he want us to see that? I think there's three reasons why he wants to see this. First of all, Moses, I believe, in his original audience, is teaching the Jewish people that their sacrificial system predates their Judean religion. Law does not originate in Sinai. It originates in the mind of God. And it's enshrined on Mount Sinai. But the concept is much bigger than that. The second thing I think Moses wants us to see is that worship, divine worship, through mediation, blameless, vicarious atonement, propitiation, these concepts that we learn in the Levitical law that we also talked about in Hebrews a few years ago, these things are eternal truths from God. They're not just for one religious group. And I think we also are meant to learn that God is glorified, God is pleased, it's sweet when those who with grace endued worship sincerely and freely in faith. That it is sweet to God. We don't sacrifice lambs and cows and such, not because it's icky, but because we have a better sacrifice. And you don't go back to the symbols when you have the actual. But God is pleased even today with his people when they come through the bloody sacrifice of Jesus and sing songs and read his word and smile and fellowship and rejoice in who God is. And he is pleased. He smells a sweet aroma like he did in the aftermath of the flood. What God has experienced today in from this congregation is a sweet smell to him if it is a worship through the mediatorial work of the best sacrifice of all jesus christ and i think these are the lessons that god is teaching us through moses about noah's response of worship at the very least if you just want to uh, draw your mind to it it's simply this God's grace-filled salvation calls us to simple, grateful worship. We can't let that go. God's grace-filled salvation leads you to simple worship. Worship him. He saved you, is the bottom line. The altar is because of the ark. And we're supposed to see that. Another little aspect of this text that sort of like kind of dumps in on us and it sort of seems a little bit out of the ordinary is okay in the aftermath we see worshiping people we see Noah's response of worship is a main part of the aftermath of the flood but then second to that we see God's common provision and expectations now. God's response to Noah's worship is a promise of common grace. Now, what is common grace? Theologians use the term common grace. They're not saying that the grace is somehow less than extraordinary. What they mean is not that the grace is common, but that it's a grace that is common to all people. You can read this story of the flood, and we did already, and you can see how often everything that God says, he says in a very um, inclusive way, right? In this section, he always includes the animals along with the blessing, 
Everything on the earth. Everything on the earth. Everything on the earth. This is because we ought not confuse theological categories. This common grace that he's giving to Noah here is not the grace of the, after the flood. Is not the grace of eternal life or salvation. It's the grace of a continued life here on this planet. It's seed time and harvest. Summer and winter. Spring and fall. It's, it's this things are going to continue on. I'm going to keep providing for you, whether you recognize and worship me or not, whether you believe in me or not. I'm still going to let you enjoy the blessing of rain, and I'm going to let you enjoy the blessing of dryness. This is what we see in this text in verses, end of verse chapter 8 through the middle of chapter 9. So God says in response, I'm not going to curse the ground for man's sake. He says, even though I know he's still wicked, the imagination of his heart is still wicked, but I'm going to give grace to him. I'm going to give a common grace to humanity. This is why the wicked live long lives. This is why the, even the oppressors get rich. Because God has chosen in this time to say, you know what? I'm going to provide for everyone. You have a baseline provision of grace. What do we see here in this baseline provision? Well, it's simply this. One, it's a withholding. One, I'm not going to bring the floodwaters down again. And it's a provision. Verse, the little poem in verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. The earth's going to work again. And it's going to work to your advantage. And really, really bad people can do some really, really good things. And really, really good people can do some really bad things. And it seems, sometimes seems very mysterious to us. And yet it's God's grace. And hurricanes can hit certain places. And tornadoes can hit other places. And, and you can't make a judgment to say, oh, it's because they were more evil than those people over there. You, you just can't do that. And it's going to rain here. And then sometimes it's going to have a drought here. And it's just, it's going to be this way. And it's going to be the earth. And its cycles is going to continue because God is going to withhold his hand of extreme judgment for a time that's what he's saying I'm going to provide for you it's going to work out in this provision in this common grace he also offers up expectations of humanity the main expectation that we're going to see in chapter 9 is and I'm going to put it as really low hanging fruit bottom shelf stuff stop killing each other that's really what it's kind of the, the main expectation, right? Don't take each other's blood. Of course, this makes sense when you recognize what was the main indictment before the flood, right? The violence that covered the earth. And so what he's essentially doing here is God is saying, I am not going to rain my fires of judgment down on you right now. I'm going to instead give you harvest and give you these things, this common grace. And I expect you to restrain yourself and regulate yourselves. Now, he's not necessarily talking only to his um, redeemed people. He's talking to Noah, who is a re representative of the rest of humanity that will come. And he says, I expect you to behave. I expect you to take care of one another. And he uses the word brother in here. Don't, don't make the same mistake that Cain made. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. Yes, you ought to care for each other and not harm one another. Now, what I find fascinating here 
And so these are not religious expectations. These are expectations that are, that are expected of all humanity. And it's not everything, but it is some very basic expectations. Now, what I find interesting is that there are a number of controversial issues that are touched on in this little section about the expectations. I came, I came up with five different sort of controversial, relevant issues today. And so because I'm a glutton for punishment... I'm going to mention those five controversial issues today and how there's just a little seed of information that can guide our thinking in this. But I'm going to leave it to you to work out the details of this in the text. Okay? Um, First of all, and this is the big one today, climate alarmism is unnecessary. Now, why do I believe that? Because God just said, I'm not going to destroy the earth. And things will continue with circular seasons. Doesn't mean there won't be changes in the climate. Doesn't mean there's not going to be catastrophes. It's simply that God is not going to let the world be destroyed until he's done and his elector all in his ark. So, you can have various positions and various thinking, but alarmism is not necessary and is downright foolish in unbelief in the promise of God's common grace. So that's the first one. Work it out yourself. Second one, next one is, eat whatever you want. Okay? There is nothing more moral or holy about being vegetarian and nothing more masculine, I'd use that word loosely, about being a strong meat eater. Okay? He says in the text, I give you everything. I give you meat, because there's not much plant life left, right? To go along with the herbs. So I take from this in a silly way that he wants me, I guess he wants me to eat a little bit of vegetables with my ribs. You know, like, have both. But the idea here, people over the centuries have always gotten just all twisted up in, this is the one, this is the diet, this is it. And it's not cruelty to eat animals. He makes it very clear. I give them to you. This is what they're for. It's not cruelty. Which leads me to another one that even hits even more at home. And I'll come back to the blood thing in just a minute. Because that fits a bigger picture. Come back to the, another one that kind of hits a little more. Um, this is the one that might give me some vegetables thrown at me. I'm not sure. Pets aren't people too. Okay. Now, where do we get this from here? They're wonderful, and they're things that a righteous man cares for the life of his beast. But he makes a great effort here to distinguish between animal life and human life. And he distinguishes, says, animal life is for you to use. Human life is for you to respect. There, why? Image of God is still in them. Indeed, Animals have the life of the flesh, the blood of life, and so you need to be cherish animal life. Don't be savage when it relates to even eating them. I think that's what he's getting at with the blood thing. Don't be savage, but don't confuse the categories. This confusion of categories has been a contributing factor to the insanity of our culture that views an in-the-womb or in-the-egg animal as more valuable than an in-the-womb human. So it is no small thing when we confuse the categories of animal and man. Only one bears the imprint of God. Respect that. Reverence that. Be in awe of that. 
And this leads us to a fourth one that is obviously very significant. Human life is intrinsically valuable. Now let's come back to this blood thing because this connects then to when he talks about shedding blood and not eating blood. And some people really get bothered when he says don't eat flesh. He's talking about animals, not cannibalism. That's also forbidden in this text. Eat flesh of animals with its blood in it. And if I remember in college having an awful lot of the really smart first-year seminarians uh, going on about, well, is, what, can you eat steak that's rare or medium rare or that sort of stuff? First of all, this is totally non-biblical. This is, you can look it up yourself. When you eat a rare steak, you're not actually eating blood. But that's okay. You go Google that later. That's not what it's talking about. Uh, John Calvin thought this was, and I think he's correct in the interpretation of this Hebrew, is while the blood is pulsating is what this means here. While the blood is pumping. So Calvin thought this meant kill the animal first. Kill it humanely. Don't be a savage and a violent person. And kill it and drain the blood and then cook it appropriately. Like, like be, a, be civilized when you approach this. That's what Calvin thought this was. Others understand it. I think, I think Calvin had a point, but I think others understand a little further. And that is, this is a reference to... Um, the pagan practices that the people, children of Israel who would be reading this would have certainly encountered, a very common pagan practice was the idea that you could gain life force from drinking an animal's blood. And so they would do that. It's a worship, pagan worship idea. I think that's probably in the text as well, that he's forbidding this idea of paganism and this savagery that comes along with that. The idea here is what he leads to when he says in verse 5, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. From the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. His point is that blood symbolizes living thing. So if you're going to eat an animal, don't be savage. Drain the blood. You know, be, be very careful. But you're, you're respecting the life. But when it comes to human... Don't even drain it. Not just don't eat the blood. Don't even touch it. And he says three times, I will require it. I will require the blood, meaning you must die if you drain unjustly another person's blood. In other words, the death penalty is God's idea, not man's. I know that governments and cultures will abuse and wrongly use this sort of thing, the death penalty. But just because it is wrongly appropriated does not mean that it is a wrong concept. This is God's idea. Because it is a way of distinguishing the distinctiveness, the value of human life. An individual named Westerman, I thought, had an interesting, helpful comment. I'll give this without much comment on it. He says, a community is only justified in executing the death penalty insofar as it respects the unique right of God over life and death, and insofar as it respects the inviolability of human life that follows therefrom. Every single violation of this limit, be it based on national, racial, or ideological grounds, is here condemned. In other words, he was saying, you don't, governments just don't have the right to take life as they please. It is based upon the belief that these are created in the image of God. 
he uses the phrase, why? Because we ought to concern ourselves as being every man's brother. He's not talking about the brotherhood of Christianity here. He's talking about the brotherhood of humanity, the Cain Abel kind of concept. And what he is saying here is that it doesn't matter. We ought to consider that our fellow man is brotherhood in humanity as image bearers of God. And there, we ought not allow anything to get in the way of regarding the equal value and worth that humans have. Racism, sexism, verbal and physical abuse, exploitation, degradation, etc., etc., is to be condemned without any sort of qualification. This is what we call the Jewish greater to lesser. If it's true that he'll require the lifeblood, a life for life, the uh, lex talionis, the life for life, then it's also true he requires eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is the concept there. If it's true that we ought, cannot take another person's blood, then we certainly cannot take their innocence. That's the concept. And then the fifth one, simply throw it out there from this text, that evidently marriage and children is a good thing. A gift of provision. Overpopulation is a myth. God will provide. Big point though, you can work those things out as I said yourself. The big point is saving grace to Noah leads to common grace for humanity. God's preservation of Noah in the ark. Now he comes out from the ark and now all of humanity can experience the changing seasons. And all of humanity can experience the eating of food of animals. And all of humanity is to protect and regulated in the brotherhood of humanity. This is the concept here. The common grace that comes from the saving grace. But I want to get to the main aspect of the text. And that is a concept that now rises up in this text. And it's really the first time that this word. It's not the first time the word is used. But it's the first time this word is really extendedly uh, worked out in the text. In the Genesis book. And that is the word uh, covenant. And we'll get to that in a moment. But first I want you to notice just something really fascinating. I mentioned earlier that Noah is Adam 2.0. But if you really get deep into it, what you find out is there are all sorts of parallelisms. From the effect that, that Adam emerged from God's spirit hovering over the watery chaos in creating the world. Noah emerges from the watery chaos and the spirit of God hovering over the waters of the flood to bring him safely out. You can start there. Adam is called innocent. Noah is called the blameless man. Adam is given a mandate to be fruitful and to be multiply and dominion over the earth. Almost the exact same wording is given to Noah and his family. To be fruitful, to multiply and have dominion over the earth. Adam walks with God in the cool of the day. Noah worships God in thankfulness. There is a provision from the earth to Adam. You may eat of every tree of the garden. Just don't eat of this one. Remember the provision to Noah? You may eat of all animals and plants. Just don't eat the blood. See guys, the similar parallels there? He's just bringing these out. Adam is described in Genesis 1 as the divine image bearer along with Eve. And Noah, along with his family, is tasked with being as image bearers, protecting the image of God. We'll go outside of this story to the next weeks, and you'll actually discover that Adam was felled by a fruit from a tree. Noah will be felled from the fruit from a vine. They both had three sons. One of them preeminently cursed. One of them preeminently blessed. Remember, Cain was cursed. 
Seth is blessed. Noah's three sons, one cursed Ham, whose grandson is said to be cursed as well. Noah's grandson, Canaan, and that is a play on words with Cain. Canaan, and then the one blessed is Shem. So you just see that obviously that Moses is drawing these parallels in. And that's fascinating as it goes. But what is unique is what is antithetic. What is not parallel then? And that is where we come up with this concept of a covenant. To Adam, there was an unspoken covenant of works. Obey or you will die. And we know what happened, right? He disobeyed. The ground is cursed. But the seed is promised. To Noah, there is a spoken, really detailed out covenant of mercy. He says, I establish my covenant. God is faithful in this. The ground, he says, I will not curse again. And a sign is given. But this idea of covenant is really important. It will become one of the main themes throughout the Pentateuch. And I believe the primary theological theme in the entirety of Scripture. So important is this word covenant in understanding the Bible that we have named the two parts of our Bible after it. The word testament is the same word covenant. We literally classify our Bible as being a part of the old covenant or a part of the new covenant. Significant theme through Scripture. And this is the first time in Genesis, in the Bible, that it is um, detailed and spoken of in, in more details than just a passing illusion. And so I think it's important to get a foundation before we finish this text off to understand that concept of a covenant. Covenant, a berit. I like Legan Duncan's definition because it's so simple. A binding relationship with blessings and obligations. An agreement, a relationship, a promise. And with that promise, there comes blessings and obligations. Theologians have described the foundational covenant as being a covenant of works. So what is a covenant of works? And, and they have said, and I agree, I believe it's true, that in the Garden of Eden, there was a covenant of works with God and Adam and Eve. Now, that word covenant is not used but in Genesis, but the concept is clearly there. Furthermore, you can look this up on your own, Hosea chapter 6. We're working on Hosea on Wednesday night, so this is my commercial for you to come. Hosea chapter 6, I think verse 7, um, it translates out to say that don't be like Adam who broke the covenant. So that's the one instance where it points back to the idea that there was a covenant. But it was a covenant of works. What is a covenant of works? The covenant of works is simply this. You shall do something. That's the agreement. I make an agreement with you. You'll do this. And if you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, if you keep the covenant, if you keep the agreement, I'll bless you. If you break the covenant... You'll be judged for it. Now, that sounds a little harsh, but actually we function in our society in a lot with a covenant of works. Those of you who go to a job and work for an employer have a covenant of works with your employer. You have agreed to do the job, right? And they agree to pay you. You don't do the job. You don't get paid. So, therefore, we don't... It is not out of the mercy and grace of your boss's heart that he gives you a paycheck, it's because he's made an agreement. There's a covenant there. There's an agreement. 
And of course, breaking that covenant right on either side results in loss. He either loses an employee because he doesn't pay you, or you lose your job because you don't do the work. That's a covenant of works. Um, there's a lot of covenant works. School, kids in school, there's a covenant of works. Did you know that you're, you enter into a covenant of works when you go to school on Monday? You agree to go to the school, to abide by the rules, to do your work, and your teachers will give you a passing grade if you do that. If you do not do that, you'll be expelled, suspended, or fail. It's fair. A covenant of works is fair. Everything depends, though, on man's faithfulness in a covenant of works. Everything depends on our doing the obligation, right? And the example of that is Adam. God basically implied to Adam and Eve, you eat of every tree, but not this one. You do the things of being fruitful and multiplying, and you will have the blessing of long life. You will not die. But you eat of this tree, and the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And Adam and Eve did not keep their end of the bargain, did they? They didn't keep the agreement. They broke it. They were unfaithful. And they were cast from the garden. Their firstborn son is a murderer. They died. And about a thousand years later, the entire world is covered in a flood. It's a big warning there. You know, be faithful to your agreement. They weren't. Theologians describe a covenant of grace, on the other hand, as another kind of covenant. A covenant of works says, you shall. God says, you shall. A covenant of grace is God saying, I will. Since he says, I will, without condition, then the only one that must be responsible or faithful to keep the agreement is God. If there's no condition upon it, then only one person has to be faithful for it to continue. And that would be God. The example of this that we're going to get to in Genesis, uh, later on in Genesis, is Abraham. Very familiar covenant of grace. God doesn't tell Abraham he has to do anything. He just simply says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you all this stuff. And Abraham doesn't go, okay, what do I need to do? It's like, that's it. I'm going to do this stuff for you. Or a covenant of grace would be one that God gives to David. I'm going to make of you, you know, you're going to be the king. And after you, there, there will be, I'll build your house. And there will never fail to be one of your descendants that will sit on the throne. And David did everything in his power to be unfaithful. And yet God still kept his promise because it was a covenant of grace, not works. Now, I, I was writing a curriculum for this junior church class, and we went through this covenant of grace of covenant of works and writing the curriculum. And I asked this very simple question to them in the curriculum that I think I'll ask you today. Which one would you rather have? The covenant of works where you must be faithful to gain the blessing, or the covenant of grace where as unfaithful as you are, you'll still gain the blessing? Now, we, you should, the answer that you should say is covenant of grace. But you know, this humanity doesn't want it for some reason. They want to do something. They want to prove their worth. They want to show that, no, I earned it. I gained it because I was obedient. Even Christians who understand that the new covenant which we celebrate is a clear, classic covenant of grace. This is the new covenant in my blood. I freely give to you. No conditions. And yet people today say, yeah, but... But I want 
to prove to him that I'm worthy of it. And even Christians who accept that, then in their Christian lives, they're walking in their lives and they say, yeah, but, but if I don't keep my end, God is going to kick me out. God's going to be angry at me. He's going to toss me to the side. It's like, why did you suddenly shift from the covenant of grace back to a covenant of works? Paul makes this argument. If it's of grace, it's grace. If it's work, it's work. Don't conflate the two. So what is our covenant to Noah? Where does that fit in the covenant of works, covenant of grace? First of all, it is not a covenant of works. Verses um, 9 through 17. Bring with us what we call a covenant chiasm. Did you know that there's a chiasm within the chiasm here? Uh, Moses, what are you doing to us? And all through this, there is no condition set upon Noah and the rest of humanity. Not one. I will establish my covenant. I will put my sign in the clouds. I will remember. I will establish my covenant. I will put my sign in the clouds. I will remember. This is my covenant. I will establish. This is repeated all through this text. I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. It's clearly in the covenant of grace spectrum, right? It's clearly in that. But it's not entirely and only a covenant of grace because there's another sort of aspect and it really is a subset of a covenant of grace. It's not opposed to it. And that's what I would describe as a covenant of mercy. What's the difference between mercy and grace? They are somewhat synonymous. They are similar, and we shouldn't miss that. But to be very technical, if I'm going to show you grace, I'm going to give you something good, and that's grace. I'm going to do good to you. And that's grace. If I'm going to show you mercy, I'm going to withhold something bad that I could do to you. So mercy is a gift. It's a grace. It's great. God is gracious to be merciful. But there are a little bit technically different. I like to use the illustration. I've used it before. It's like if the guy that you're, that's road raging, when you're driving down the highway, I came across one of those the other day, and I just tried to get out of there as quickly as possible. You know, the guy that's road raging, and you're like, what in the world is going on with this guy? You could execute judgment on him. I wouldn't recommend it. And try to run him off the road. And he broke your tire, you break his tire. That's justice, you might say. Sort of. There's no grace or mercy in there at all. You could see him broken down on the side of the road up ahead of you after road raging you, pull up alongside of him and help fix his car. That would be grace. Does that make sense? You're giving him something he doesn't deserve. You're doing something good for him, even though he did everything to not deserve it. Mercy, on the other hand, it's not lesser than grace. I'm just saying it's different. Mercy, on the other hand, is when you see him on the side of the road broken down there, you turn your blinker on, you get over on the other side of the road, you slow down and you drive by him and then you get back. In other words, you withhold the judgment from him. You haven't necessarily done something really overtly good to him. You haven't given him something, but you've withheld something from him. That's the concept of mercy. Like I said, they're very, mercy and grace are two sides of the same coin. So the, what theologians often do that we, we shouldn't do is we take things that are simple concepts and we boil them down to their details to the point that kind of makes them sometimes lose their power. 
I, I risk doing that today to try to explain the difference. Why do I see Noah's covenant as a covenant of mercy? Because God is not so much saying what I will do for you, Noah, but he's saying what I will not do to you. The covenant is, I will not rain down fiery, watery arrows on this earth again. I will not rain it down. I will not destroy the earth again with a flood. I will restrain myself. Think of grace, a hand holding out with a gift. Mercy, a hand held back from a slap. That's the difference. So this is a covenant of mercy, which is one of the reasons why it's not, why, why, why it is to the whole earth and not only to his elect. This isn't a covenant of salvation. That was actually a covenant in the first time the word is used in chapter 6, verse 18, when he says to Noah, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark. That was a more plain covenant of grace. I will save you. This is, I will withhold, and this is going to benefit the whole world. Okay, now that I've sort of worked through that, this chiastic covenant, this covenant chiasm, this rainbow covenant, whatever you want to call it, is fantastic. And I'll let you work out this afternoon, if you want, reading this text and seeing the parallelism here. But I want to just point out that there are three truths that ought to bind to your soul and to your mind. And this will encourage you, I believe, if you bind them to you. Mercy is promised. Peace is possible because God is faithful. Mercy is promised. Peace is possible because God is faithful. Mercy is promised. I, and in the Hebrew it's the word myself, I myself establish my covenant. I stand it in its place. It's words of strength and authority. And that's how he begins this chiasm. Noah's in the aftermath. uh, Desolation, carnage, problems. Everything's messed up all around you. And God comes to him and he's worshiping. And hopeful, and God says, all seasons are going to keep coming and going. Don't worry, the rain's not going to fall again. That's what God thought in his heart. But now he's going to say to Noah and to his family, I will stand up my promise, my covenant. And that covenant promise is a promise of mercy, that I will withhold judgment from the earth. He'll repeat it at the end in verse 17. This covenant I have established. My verses there are a little messed up. He'll say it. This covenant I have established. And so we have sort of the the chiastic I establish. I have established it. Which is fascinating. In the first part of the chiasm he says I will establish it. And at the end of the chiasm by the time he even finishes his speech he says I have established it. I will do it. It is done. And then he is so gracious that he says without any sort of response from Noah. But how do I know? Let me, let me get ahead of you, Noah. I'm going to give you a perpetual symbol or sign that you will know that I am merciful. And this is my perpetual sign. 
This is the sign. The sign is what? I give my bow in the clouds. Now, did you know that there's no word in the Hebrew for rainbow? That's a word that we've made up to describe the bow in the clouds. That there's one word for bow here, and the word is the word that one would use to bow with an arrow, to pull, shoot an arrow out of a bow. That's the word used here. When he says, I give, Natan, I give or I give up my bow in the clouds, there is beautiful, poetic language being spoken to humanity by our God. He's saying, I'm hanging up my bow. My warring with you, man, with wicked, even though you're still wicked from your youth, I'm stopping. I'm going to operate in peace. Yes, God used the natural processes of the bending of light through rain droplets, through the cloud, to cause it to be this beautiful array of colors. But when you see a rainbow, do you understand what we're supposed to think is not, oh, how pretty. We're supposed to think, oh, our God is at peace with us. He decided to not rain down floods on us today because he established a covenant. I give up my bow in the clouds. I yield my war bow. He hangs his bow as a sign of a peace treaty with humanity. Peace is possible with the divine because he has brokered a treaty. Now understand with me for just a moment. If you're in battle... With a, if you're a military leader and you're in battle with another military leader and you got these big armies there, usually it's the side that is losing that tries to broker the peace treaty, right? Usually the ones whose armies have been devastated like, we can't win this. Let's go see if they'll give us terms of peace. Usually the general who's got them where he wants them is not going to give peace. No surrender, no quarter given. Did we not just read in the flood that when God war, rains down his, war, his, his wrath, when he wars against a wicked humanity, that there was no sense in which man even had the ability to battle back? <laughs> in other words, who is the losing party between man and God? But who brokers the peace treaty? Who comes toward sinful humanity with the sign of peace? Humanity didn't wave the white flag, so God sees it and goes, well, okay then. I get God himself waves the white flag. God himself says, I will establish my covenant of mercy, and I'll give you my sign. I'm hanging up my bow. Repeats that in the text. The bow will be in the clouds. This is the sign of the covenant. It's just repeating in a parallel. But remember the beautiful part about chiasms? Remember the beautiful part is that the middle is pointing to the emphasis. And what is the emphasis? It's found in verse 15. And I will remember my covenant. Remember in Genesis 8-1, what stopped the flood? God remembered Noah. Remember that word remember doesn't mean he, oh yeah, remembered he had something on the stove. It's the word faithful. God was faithful to Noah. 
God is faithful to mercy. Yahweh will operate with mercy more than judgment, patience more than vengeance, which according to Peter, people will take advantage of. Where is the promise of his coming? Still will operate with patience more than vengeance, peace more than war. But understand, dear friends, that Yahweh, Jehovah, he will pick up his bow two more times and aim his arrows at this world two more times. One we read about at the end of the scripture, it's the end of the age. After the elect are safely in the ark of Jesus, all of them, after the fullness of time has come, He will take aim at the earth again. And according to the Apostle Peter, nothing will be left. But 2,000 years ago, he drew his bow back again. And he aimed his bow at one man who was carrying your sins and my sins. And he pulled the bow of heaven with divine strength, and he fired incessantly on his willing only begotten son, who joyfully took all the arrows of God's wrath, shielding me from them, protecting me from what I deserve, satisfying judgment, so that the peace that is said to be possible, the peace with God that's said to be possible, in Genesis chapter 9, becomes actual for me, for you, who hide behind Jesus. So because of Christ, mercy is not only promised, it's fulfilled. And because of Christ Jesus, peace is not only possible, it's actual for his people. And because of Jesus Christ, it's not just the reality of God's faithfulness, but the experience of his faithfulness.